Today with Sarah McInerney. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player app. The democratic order is now in greater danger than at any time since the Second World War. The threats it faces include populism, intrusive technology and institutional weakness. Writer and journalist Peter Gagan discusses an imperiled system in a book called Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics. And he joins me now from our London studio. Peter, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Um, and a fascinating book. You, you note in it that voters around the world are turning against democracy and that they're voting for populists and strong men. Um, what would explain why that is happening, do you believe? Thanks for having me on, uh, Sarah. Yeah, well, well, there's been quite a lot of research really that's looked into this, you know, and actually even just anecdotally, you can see around uh, around the world, we've seen a kind of a rising tide of kind of movements against anti-elite movements, populist movements. And there was a really interesting study actually that came out earlier this year by Cambridge University that found that in the entire world, uh, disenchantment with democracy is highest in two democracies. One is the United States and the other is the United Kingdom. And my book really tries to look in particular at the United Kingdom, the United States and, and Europe to try and get a sense of, well, you know, why is some of it, why is, is that happening? And one of the reasons that the kind of issue that my book touches on and, and really looks at in, in detail is, is the role of money and, and in politics and kind of almost the corruption of our politics. And I think one of the reasons why we've seen a, a rise of populism has been this kind of growing role of money, the growing role of anonymous money in politics, anonymous uh, lobbying, but also how the internet has changed our politics too, which allows kind of invisible and unseen actors to kind of spread misinformation, to spread lies, but also to push our politics in ways that we don't really understand. And what I was trying to do is to get a sense of this. We've seen a lot of analysis of, of the, our changing politics in terms of things like how, how our economics has changed, you know, how society has changed. But what I'm trying to do with this book is to say, well, OK, th these things have all happened, but what's what's happened with money and what's happened with influence in our politics? How has that changed? Mm. And I kind of argued, I think that's had a big part to play in how politics around the world has changed. Yeah, and one of the examples that you give of this, um, the most egregious recent instance of it, uh, was a donation of £435,000, which allowed the DUP to purchase space for pro-Brexit propaganda before the European referendum in 2016. Um, we know where the money, who passed the money along, but we don't know where it came from, do we? No, so that's that's really where this book, this book, the genesis of this book actually started, you know, four years ago when I was reporting on the Brexit referendum, um, and I was in the town of Sunderland, and I just noticed an advert, a big colourful advert, that's uh, for uh, Brexit on the front of the free newspaper, the Metro, and I noticed on the back of it, it said it was paid for by the Democratic Unionist Party, and I was like, well, what's going on with that? That's interesting, and I kind of started looking into it, and I realised um, that this advert had been placed in, um, basically, it'd been placed in newspapers all over Britain um, ahead of the referendum, lots of money had been spent by the DUP. And because there was secrecy laws in Northern Ireland, because of the troubles, which meant that political donations didn't have to be declared, this huge donation had never had to be made public. Um, and we know the kind of, we know a little bit about the, the organisation that gave the Democratic Union's party this money, kind of a tiny group called the Constitutional Research Council, which sounds very grand, but really is just was just one man, uh, one man, a small businessman in the outskirts of Glasgow. Um, but we still have no idea where actually this huge chunk of money came from mm -hmm. because of these kind of secrecy laws. And I, and I kind of, what was interesting for me was when I reported that story, I thought maybe this is just a one-off. I, I worked with my colleagues at Open Democracy on it. And I was like, well, this is maybe just this one kind of aberration. But actually then when I started to ask about, well, how does money and influence in politics work more generally? 
generally. I found that this was a really egregious example. It was a really clear example of anonymous money influencing a big vote. This was just a couple of days before a knife edge referendum. But actually, money influences our politics in lots of other ways, too, and in lots of ways that we can't see and can't struggle to really get a handle on. And I suppose in terms of the laws and regulations that are in place to try and prevent this sort of thing happening, you look at that as well and about how, um, you know, people can set up think tanks or things like that to keep their affairs private. And you look at the, the ceilings on spending as well and, and how they're, they're quite ineffective. Yeah, well, a lot of, um, and I look in particular in Britain, but also Ireland is not dissimilar in this too. A lot of our laws and our approach to politics is from a, is from the analogue age. It's, you know, it's from a, a bygone age in some respects where politics was something that just happened around election times. You know, campaigns are something that happened a few months every few years before an election. Now we really live in a world of continuous campaigning. You, know, you, you just have to look at Britain, America, and even in Ireland too, is there's always kind of almost some element of political campaigning going on. And our, a lot of that happens online. And a lot of our laws were written before really the internet even existed. So for example, in Britain, if you were a, a voter and you get a leaflet through your door from a local uh, prospective politician, and it'll have his picture on it or whenever else, but it'll also have to say who who is uh, paid for it and on behalf of who. So where did the money come from for it? That same politician, that same political party can put an advert online and they don't have to put any details at all. They don't even put an imprint of the political party. So that's just one example of that. But also what we've seen is a huge increase, at least in Britain, in the amount of private money that's going into politics. So you're seeing more and more private money going into politics and there's an unlimited ceiling on how much money you can spend. So that's having a huge effect too. And it's that that's been a real step change. And I think, you know, the, the rise of the, the basically communications revolution of the last 15 years has fundamentally changed politics and our laws haven't kept up pace with that at all. Yeah, because you make the point um, that you have to go back to the 1920s to find the last time a general election candidate was convicted of breaking spending limits. Uh, so there's a there's a judgment there to be made by the general election candidate. Will I just break the limits and, you know, if I get a fine, I'll, I'll deal with it. But it's, it's worth it. That's essentially it. What we've what's been created um, is a situation in which actually it's a, it's the prisoner's dilemma. You know, and by that I mean in the prisoner's dilemma, basically, it's always better it's always better to break the rules if you think the other people are going to break the rules too. And what's happened is a situation in politics in many, many countries where it's actually better for you to break the rules because the cost of, of being found to have broken the rules is often so minimal. So as I write, it's been almost 100 years since someone was found guilty of breaking spending rules at general elections, even though almost every candidate does it. It's, it's accepted part of parcel. It just doesn't it's not it's not enforced. In Britain, the maximum fine for breaking electoral law is £20,000, which, you know, in a country the size of Britain, where people regularly give millions and millions of pounds, individuals to a political party in a given year, that's a tiny sum of money. It's just the cost of doing business. And I spoke to one politician, a Labour politician, uh, when I was writing this book, a British Labour politician, who basically said there's no incentive for politicians to change the system, even from the opposition parties, because they all feel like they know how it works. They know, even if even if it's not getting them into a national government, they know how it works in their local area. They know what they need to do to get elected and how to work the system in a way that works for them. But just like the prisoner's dilemma, it means that actually that, you know, you, you it's the tragedy of the commons. It might work for one person and get them what they want. But actually, it, and I, I argue, it really erodes trust in our politics because the more we see politicians been, you know, conflicts of interest um, been found to have been, you know, having interest. Uh, 
accusations of favouring political donors. That just erodes faith in politics more and more. So we'll see those kind of figures about dissatisfaction with democracy only rising. Mm. Um, and we've looked a lot at Britain there. What about the US then, Peter? And who, who are the big figures in the US that are influencing politics? Well, America, in many ways, this is an American playbook that's kind of been rolling out across the world. You know, we've seen it at times in Ireland, too, where American money is coming to Ireland and tried to buy things, not particularly successfully at times, but tried to buy adverts on Facebook to influence Irish referendums. So, and in, even in Britain, too, in some ways, the model in Britain is, is an American model. And what's happened in America over the last 50 years is just money has been the currency of American politics. You know, in the 2018 um, midterm elections in America, $6 billion was spent on political campaigning. And what's happened in America, what America has a history of is of private money, particularly corporations, particularly things like oil companies, you know, uh, companies are involved, kind of pharmaceuticals, everything who want to lobby for things in their interest, spending huge amounts of money in politics. But what I also try to do in the book is to try and talk about another side of, of this change which comes from America, which is trying not just to buy politicians, but to actually buy the ideas that politicians put forward. Because then, you know, it's easy sometimes to think about just corruption as just buying, paying a politician money to do something, like to rezone land or something. But actually, what what came from America in the last 50 years was found that was a lot of corporate interest found it was much better actually to buy the idea space. So not just giving money to politicians, but actually doing things like setting up think tanks. In America, going even further and setting up universities, getting these pro-corporate ideas, you know, very specific ideas about like getting rid of workers' rights, privatised healthcare, specific agendas that, basically, you know, anti-climate change because there was a lot of oil money involved and then basically making those the ideas that politicians espouse because it's actually quite easy to get it's actually comparatively easy to get ideas onto the political agenda because often politicians are actually looking for ideas often you know they get elected without having a very strong idea this is these these are the ideas that I, I'm really in favor of and it can be quite easy actually if you've got money and power and you can do things like have these independent sounding think tanks have institutions have um, academics who sat with, with kind of impressive sounding job titles saying things that really essentially are just lines from a corporation mm. but they don't look like they're coming from a corporation I think that's a really important thing I think it's the same as the way political adverts online are so much more persuasive if they don't look like they're coming from a political party or a politician and that's something I'm really interested in is like how lobbying works and how it shapes how we think because if we're think if we're seeing messages that we don't know they're coming from a political source, uh, and which is quite easy to do in the internet age, that really can influence us in ways that we're not very aware of. And of course, now projects like Open Democracy, which which you write for, they're also funded by uh, the likes of billionaire philanthropists. I think George Soros is what is one of them. Yeah, we get, we receive most of my, yeah we receive money from a, a, a lot of different uh, organisations. But the big difference with that is it's all it's all transparent. So if you go onto the Open Democracy website, you can see all the all the funders, and that's the big difference with the people I'm writing about things like think tanks. They don't they, these donations are undisclosed, so they're anonymous donations. So you don't know where the money is actually coming from. So these these think tanks I write about don't declare any of their money. So whereas you can ask me this question now on the radio, which is good, if a think often a think tank person, say in Britain or America or even in Ireland, will appear, and because you don't know where their money's come from, you can't really ask them that question. And often they're not asked a question about where does their money 
money come from? Because you don't know that their money is coming from, say, an oil company because it's not declared. So you just don't ask the question. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big difference. I think there's a, it's the lack of transparency. There will always be like there will always be politics will, will always remain, remain will always have an aspect of people attempting to influence other people. But when it's it's a lack of transparency, I think is a big change that we're seeing now. And I think that that's where the Internet's been really pivotal is because it's kind of supercharged aspects of opac- opacity and darkness that already existed and made them far more uh, far more prevalent. So it means it's even harder pe- for people to understand the information that they're getting. And I think that just kind of feeds into that sense of distrust and sense of dissatisfaction and disenchantment with politics and democracy in general, which I think is a really dangerous thing. Yeah, it is dangerous. And it's all a bit depressing, Peter, what you're outlining here, because we, you know, things don't seem to be going in the right direction. So are they going to continue going in the wrong direction, do you think, or what can be done to improve the situation? I know, and I don't want to sound too gloomy. I guess my the reason one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I think you do need we need to see what the problems are, and I write that at the start of this book. Like to understand how to fix the system, you need to see what the problems are in the first place. It to be there's there's lots of things we could do to make our system better. It's not that difficult, you know. Whether it's in Ireland and, and there's lots of things in Ireland you could do with with SIPA, which is a very kind of cumbersome system. It doesn't seem to work all that well. You can imagine Ireland could get a proper electoral regulator. That mm. would be a good thing. There's no in is Brit- there political will there? Yeah, I mean you mentioned there isn't political will there in relation to the expenses, you know, do you reckon it's there in relation to greater transparency over funding for... I think that's the big thing that we need to build on. I think that's where citizens do come in, you know, is actually making making trans, making that political will part of, like, part of the public conversation. I think for so long it hasn't been. Um, and I think what's interesting, if you look at Britain, where, where I am now, we are starting to see that in the last few months. We've had a series of kind of scandals about political donations. We've had this report into Russian interference in British democracy, which most Shockingly for me, I basically said there's no proper regulation of British democracy, and that's the huge problem. We've seen, okay. you know, the, with the recent honours. So I think there's a possibility. I just think it. I think it's actually there's a sense of which voters themselves need to be able to stand up and say, look, no, unless you are willing, right. to stop, you know, make these make these pledges, and then you know, that hopefully that will make some change. Okay, Peter Gagan, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon or this morning. Today with Sarah McInerney on RTE Radio One.